And I'll add my amen. Thank you so much, uh, Brian and Jan and Beth, uh, Betty and Jimmy and Mindy working with sound, and then Don uh, for your song, and Jan again for uh, the instrumental. Uh, the Lord is good to us, and the Lord blesses us. And even in an occasion like this, uh, these fine folks feel called and committed to come and to provide this experience of worship for you. And I'm so, so very grateful that they do. Let me ask you, if you will, uh, think with me. Uh, we'll read in time from Romans, the eighth chapter. And uh, you'll find your place there. Romans, the eighth chapter, will begin with verse one. Uh, the Rowdy Methodist uh, minister, William Willimon, tells a story. He and his wife traveled some distance out to the country to hear and attend a, a man's a funeral. Uh, there, uh, they heard the country preachers spell it out straight. Um, there's only two ways. And there's one way to life and hope in Jesus Christ. And if you're not in that way, you're in another route, in another way. And things look bleak. The minister went on to say that all during this man's life he had no time or appreciation or patience with Jesus and mistreated all the people who did, unless there was some amazing sort of thing that happened at the end of his life where he called out in faith, he most surely died not with Christ but heading toward a hell, not heaven. It was rather stark as Willimon re remembers it and retells it. And on the way back he was lamenting fuming, and his wife was sitting there patiently listening, listening, nodding ever so often. I can't believe that this minister would take this occasion of all times to spell this out. And uh, he has all week to preach, and does he have to assign this man to hell right there in his funeral service? And he just couldn't believe how stark and crude and, and how, uh, how direct the old country preacher had been. And then he realized that he'd been talking and lamenting, maybe a little too long, and his wife had been there nodding a little too long, and maybe she had something to say, and so he stopped long enough to hear her say, and you know the worst thing, and then she paused, and he wondered, what's the worst thing? What's the worst thing? You know the worst thing? What's the worst thing? Williman answers. And his wife said, it was probably all true. That's the worst thing. Uh, the reality is this, even in our day when language is so hostile and we can be so mean and say things we would never say in good judgment and sobriety over internet and so on, we still, when it comes to religion, have kind of a nice culture. We try to make things, well, pleasant. We try to smooth things over. We don't take very seriously our place before God or our lack of place before God if we've never come to Him in Christ. We don't look at the peril and so on. And this passage that we'll read will correct our misimpression that we can just simply smooth things over or all things will be all right and everybody's going to be okay or I'm sure He's in heaven now. Said about any person, religious, not, faithful, not, it's as if, though, we've just sort of all swept everything together, and it's part of God and apple pie and so on. I'm uh, remembering uh, on an occasion asking somebody about their faith in Christ, 
And uh, they responded with great affirmation and so on, and then went on to say that they had been to a, ra a rally about the flag. This is back when flags were uh, bur being burned for other purposes and other protests some time ago. It struck me, this person just thinks believing in Christ is like being a good citizen or being there on the right side of a political argument. It's not what the gospel says. We underplay our sense of serious, serious peril before God when we don't stand before Him in Jesus Christ. And then we sort of also underplay how radical the new life is. It's not a life of our own doing. It's something that God gives us. It's something different. And I think this passage sort of cuts through our norming and making the gospel a kind of a generic word about feeling better or trying harder. In this passage, we learn that things are quite serious, but the new life that God gives in Jesus Christ is quite dramatic and quite different and not something we could ever achieve on our own. One vocabulary lesson, uh, and, and there are many, many opinions about this text, and it's uh, difficult and, and, and loaded and, and compressed as these texts and, and Romans often are. But if I could just ask you to think with me about what the word flesh means. It can, to, to be sure, it can be just used of our place in our, our bodily, physical world. But very often in the New Testament, and especially here, it's used in kind of a coded and charged language to talk about our place in this world as a rebel, as someone who's against God and against God's purpose, someone who's thwarting the purpose of God. And it is used not only to talk about our defiance and our sinfulness, but it's also used to sort of think about our place in this other dimension of rebellion and our destiny one day in this place of dominion. It's used not only of our fallen and, and wounded character, but also of our destiny. And all of that imagery may be in mind when Paul says here, flesh. And he contrasted especially with the word spirit. And again, the word spirit can be used on a whole litany of things, including our human spirit. I think that occurs even in this chapter. But predominantly, I think what you should see when you look down at the translation is you should notice most typically that it's a capital S. It's not our spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's most typically addressed in this chapter. In fact, the whole spirit is about the chapter. Paul's references about the spirit are kind of crushed into this chapter 8, a great percentage of them. And it's this work of the spirit that Paul has in mind. I bring that vocabulary lesson to your mind because I want to warn you, we might be geared by our own culture and upbringing to think this is going on. That Paul in these last several chapters have talked, are talking about two ways, but the two ways he's talking about are, are these. I can sometimes kind of cater to my lower self and be drawn into and drawn away from my noble self to be drawn to the matters of the flesh. And then on other occasions, I can rally myself and be given to more, well, mature and decent ideas. I can rally myself and be uh, attached to the values and virtues of the Spirit. And some with our loaded language like that, we come to this text thinking, well, it's kind of a tug of war. And sometimes we fall to the flesh and sometimes we fall to the Spirit. 
But I am convinced that is not what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8. In fact, it's a kind of a, a different way of processing these terms altogether. <clears throat> Paul, I believe, is contrasting the domain or the life of indifference and defiance to God that he calls coded, in this coded language, the flesh, with the life that God has brought to us by the empowering, life-giving power of the Spirit that he calls life in the Spirit. And with those words in mind, will you turn with me and read with me or follow along as I read from Romans chapter 8. We'll read from the New International Version. And I'll comment along the way if you'll be patient with me as we conclude our reading. The text says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free, free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, uh, for the, what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind is governed by the flesh. It, it, it is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God and does not, subdue, uh, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That is that sober word. It's just not a matter of you not believing in God or you offering some other polite kind of, kind of a, a failure before God. It is the humble notion, very humbling to hear, that when we are in this domain of the flesh, that is, we don't belong to Jesus, we are sharing in the gone wrongness of the world. It runs right through the middle of us. And we actually live in hostility to God. That's the humble word of Paul. But the hope is, by contrast, so beautiful. Look with me in verse 9. And read with me and follow, if you will. I'll do my best to identify these series of if and then clauses that make up the rest of our verses. You, however, and he's speaking plurally here, you. He's speaking of the readers, this gathered church. I don't think Paul is trying to talk people out of their salvation or put them on the hot seat. Are you sure you're in the Spirit? I think Paul's trying to encourage them that by following Christ like they have, they are demonstrating they have already this life in the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed... And if maybe is a little too heavy a translation, but I don't know a good substitute. If the Spirit of God lives in you. Again, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
Well, they do not belong to Christ. That person, the Messiah, is not in them. And again, verse 10, if, but if Christ is in you, the Messiah is in you, through the Spirit's presence in you, then two things. Then, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit is life, or the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And that's the heart of what I'd want to share with you this morning. That if you are in Christ, that if you've come to this place of faith in Christ, you're counted as among God's people, and the work of God is ongoing in you, and the Spirit of God resides in you, then you are going to still be subject to death. We are still under the death sentence. We will still die. That will be the course of us, all of us who live this way, except for those maybe who see the Lord's return. But even though we are subject to death, that's what is ahead of each of us, even those of us who are Christians now in Christ. The word is this, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the last, if then, in verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then here's what we can count on. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit that lives in you. The punchline is something like this, that even though the body will die, the Spirit of God who dwells in us has the power and the inclination, and at the right time, He will raise us from the dead. And we now have shared this solidarity that belongs to Jesus. Now, Jesus is ahead of us as our pioneer. He has already faced death, faced it, tasted it, and come through on the other side in defiance, never to be subject to death again. But that same destiny awaits all of us. And Paul is trying to encourage I'd like to ask you to think with me just about a, a couple of ideas from this text. I want you to think, first of all, that, about this idea of indwelling. It's mysterious. If you, if you read in the original, you could see that it's, it's kind of strange and that sometimes we're spoken of as being in Christ, and then other times Christ is spo spoken of and the Spirit is spoken of as being in us. And this mystery perhaps is intentional. There's a communion and an indwelling and Christians are marked by the Spirit's indwelling. Paul is not here suggesting that we have come to a place where we'll never be prone to sin again. Paul is merely suggesting this. There's a genuine evidence that God has indeed been at work in you, and you can sense that evidence in the Spirit's place in you, and the Spirit's voice to you, and the Spirit's dwelling within you. Again, you don't have to have all sorts of phenomenal sort of stories. You don't have to have your life marked by every sort of uh, evidence of the miraculous all around you. That's probably the case, but most of us don't see it as we walk through the way. But I just want to say to you, it's not marked by fireworks. It's not marked by some grand, uh, uh, again, series of miracles that kind of marks every step. 
Most of us, in fact, are sort of plotters in the way we might be able to look back at our life and see that God was helping us in a way we didn't understand. But we don't understand things as we are plotting through life in the here and now. And we face questions. We are in the same realm of this gone wrong world and we will face it and taste it. We are not immune to the gone wrongness of this world. And the victory of death through sin is still going to reach out and take us. But that is not the last word. Because those of us who now belong to Jesus have the Spirit of God in us. And we are being spiritually remade and spiritually brought to life through His presence in us. And we are now counted as His very own children. And we bear and, and, and share in, in this uh, great privilege to be people for whom the, the sacrifice of Jesus and the, and the offering of Jesus now heals us and cleanses us and forgives us. And we in this new place, with the Spirit there among us, we have this subtle, sometimes powerful, but sometimes subtle witness that God is not done with us. He has this destiny for us, and we sense His Spirit. I'd love to go on. I'm uh, more and more taken by the idea that uh, this might be something parallel to the Old Testament story. Remember when the children of Israel were liberated, they were set free out of slavery from Egypt, and they were given new lives, and yet they plundered their opportunity in faithfulness, and now they're prone to wander in the wilderness before they will eventually reach this land. And what was there among them? What guided them? What was their sure guide and what was their sure sign that God was with them and God had not abandoned them? But this special Shekinah presence of God that was there with them. And so the presence of God is with us in our pilgrimage and in our struggle. I want to also mention to you this, just this beautiful idea there in verse 10, that while it is true that death will still seize us and take us, and that is the destiny of all this gone wrong world, and that's because of, the text says, sin, but it also answers that with this notion that the Spirit is life, or our translations tried to give you the sense of it, is life-giving. And the Spirit does what it does to raise you up from the dead and does that because of righteousness. I want to tell you that Jesus is breaking the bonds of death and passing through death and coming into life is not something that is a subtle sideline to his three-year ministry here on earth. But it is central, even in a time when he was being uh, cryptic and somewhat secretive with his own followers and speaking indirectly to others publicly and bringing them along, he comes to a time when he unfolds God's purpose and he is marching to Jerusalem and there he will die and they just can't get it. Again and again and again he mentions this, he speaks to it, but he tells them that he can trust God even in the face of this death. And they hear these words, but they just 
don't get it, can't process it, struggle all away. And, and even upon seeing it, they can't put the pieces together. It's finally when they see Jesus and the power of his resurrection that they get what he was up to all along. And Jesus shows the power in John chapter 11, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. It is, in a way, in John's story, the climax of his public ministry. It's there where uh, the kind of witness to who Jesus is and his role as God's agent is undeniable. But it's also the very thing that stirs the human enemies against Jesus. And there they begin a plot that will eventually, on the human side of things, John spells it out that God grants or yields or surrenders his life. But on the human side of things, it says that this plot was eventually successful and it took the life of Jesus. There's something about the power of resurrection that raises the enemy to its height because it's the enemy's claws are so gripped around this death that seizes us and moves us and causes us and provokes to do so many things. But when Jesus shows he has the power over death, that changes everything. That same kind of life-giving power is found in Exodus. When they seem to be in the grips of a deadly slavery and the world empire that with few rivals is so strong and sets upon them, what hope could they ever have of anything being different? And their hopelessness is matched by the new life-giving liberty that God gives them, signs, wonders, spectacular power to deliver them. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet looks ahead to what God's work would look like sometimes, but it's not encouraging at first because what he sees of collective Israel and Israel's project is just a, a whole valley full of bones and remains. It's a mass grave and these bones rattle. There seems to be no life and no hope of life. If there ever was something that was irredeemable and permanent, it seems like these bones, good and dead, their life and the flesh around them gone from memory, it seems like that is so final and so certain until the Spirit blows. And when the Spirit blows, the God who made everything can remake and give life. He can work where there seems to be no hope We have hope, dear ones, because of resurrection. Because where we do not have the strength to reform ourselves, to straighten ourselves up, and to make our best case, we don't make ourselves. We're not like we're told in our culture so often. Self-made men and women, the truth is this. Before God, we are all impoverished and all in prison and all doomed. And there doesn't seem to be much to build on there until the Spirit works and makes what is lifeless in us come to life. And you hang on to the story of Jesus and you hang on to the Spirit because you will see the testimony of God is sure and God will bless that and bring life from that hope and faith in Jesus where life seemed impossible. My last word is about righteousness. How is it that the Spirit works what He works to bring us 
from death to life because of righteousness. And there's so many answers offered along the way. Some say it's because of the righteousness that God achieved on the cross that is given to us. Some uh, cite another verse from chapter 4 where we're called to righteous living to live out this righteousness. Some of us think about Abram. Remember him? Death ruled, right? He couldn't have a child. He was getting older. They couldn't have children. When he was younger, there seems to be no hope the whole prospect is laughable, you might remember. Until the Spirit moves. And God can bring life where there is no life. What God is doing in us is no less remarkable. The life before Him, the life of the Spirit that we have squandered and we have spoiled and we have forfeited is good and gone and dead, as dead as dead can be. Except for the Spirit to blow, except for God to speak and send His Word, except for God to do His great work. Perhaps the notion of righteousness is meant to bring us to the very image of Jesus Himself, who went to death's door and faced death, And it looks like it's something that will test him if we read the Garden of Gethsemane. But he decides he will trust God like Abraham trusted God. And he trusts God with his very life. And he surrenders his life for the sake of his father and for the sake of their shared mission. And God brings from death to life, His Son. And my word to you is this, the same God who can give life and give hope and bring life from nothing can take us parched and weary and broken and without strength and reserve. And these are the very people who work when the Spirit stirs us to see in Jesus the hope of the world and to cling to that Jesus. And what God does for us is nothing more than a radical, remarkable thing that you should not overlook. It is not self-reform. I'm just not asking you to act like Jesus wants you to act or, or to sort of pay Jesus a little mind here and there. I'm asking you to receive a life from Him that you have no claim on. It is the life not of your own making. Not your own initiative. And then if I could play with the title to conclude, it's also a life not of your own in another sense. Now everybody listen, but some of you who are a little older will hear this and remember it. You ever remember somewhere along the way that your family was given a gift and all the young kids were so excited, they just couldn't believe it. And you were shocked when someone older in your family said, no, we can't take that. What? What? No, we can't take that. It's a long, evolved story. Nowadays, we usually define gift as something that comes to you and has no strings attached. And I want to say to you, I don't think that's how the world of the Bible worked. 
not how the ancient world worked and not how the mind of Paul worked. It is true that salvation is a gift to us and that we do nothing to deserve it on our own. But let me tell you, the ancient world was a world of hierarchy and gift giving mattered. And you had to give the right kind of gift to the right kind of person. And let me tell you, gifts came with strings attached. And when you see the enormity of this gift, so bigger than your station, so much more than you deserve, from somebody high up on the hierarchy, the very height of the hierarchy, who's paying attention to little old you down here, here and now you're forfeited and broken as it is, and he still gives you this enormous gift. Let me tell you, this gift has strings attached. This is a life that you could not make on your own. It is a life that God gives you, but it is a life that now that once God has given it to you is not yours anymore. It belongs to God. And we owe Him a sense of gratitude and clarity. And so this morning, let me charge you. Let's get our minds to focus. Let's still be kind and courteous, but let's not let this sense of compromise just sweep over us to say everybody's okay this is all right and well i'm sure now he's with jesus the truth is this the course we're on leads us to a terrible place where we forfeit all that we could be before god and if we know something better we know it by the grace of god by the stirring of the spirit who makes something in us out of nothing who brings life where there was death brings hope where there was none. And the life you live is not your own. Not of your own making. And it does not belong finally to you or to me. This life is not of my making. It is a gift from God.